Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when the, they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressors you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he established it and upholds it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. You may not know the name Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, but you are familiar with his work. Longfellow was an American poet and Harvard professor. His literature, his poetry, and his translation work were known worldwide, yet his life was one of sorrow. Longfellow's first wife, Mary, died at the age of 22 while pregnant with their first child. She miscarried, and as a result, it took her life, to which she later wrote, One thought occupies me day and night. She is dead. She is dead. And as a result, I am weary and sad. Longfellow was able to remarry seven years later to his second wife, Frances. It seemed to be a blessed marriage. They were married for 18 years and had six children. But tragedy struck once again when a candle tragically and fatally lit the dress of his wife on fire. And Henry was so severely burned and scarred by this, trying to put out the flames of his wife, that he was unable to attend her funeral. And so as a result, he was left to raise their six children on his own. To make matters worse, this event happened in 1861, just as the Civil War of the States was beginning. 
And it doesn't matter if you were on the north or on the south, it was a bleak and tragic time. And Longfellow's son, his oldest son, went off to fight in the war and he was critically shot as a result and was left physically crippled. It was in the midst of this that Longfellow became severely depressed. He said that I'm inwardly bleeding to death. And yet he wrote this song, a song that you are familiar with. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And the song begins, and it seems like a cheery, Christmassy type song. When it says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. Mild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the song turns, as it were, and it turns into what almost seems like a lament. And you hear Longfellow's despair. The following verses go like this. I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of Christendom and rolled along. The unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. From each black accursed mouth, the cannons thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the household born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And you can hear what Longfellow is saying. If there is any year that perhaps we should not sound the Christmas bells, if we should not sing the Christmas carols, this would be it. How can we speak of peace on earth when our country is at war? Goodwill towards men while guns are pointed at each other. Can we just hit pause for a moment? Can we silence the bells? Can we stop the singing? Because quite frankly, the cannons have drowned out the sounds of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Many of us have experienced tragedy, perhaps not like Longfellow, But we can relate. And sometimes life can be too much. As a result, Christmas can be a little too much to handle. It can almost seem idealistic. Joy, happiness, peace, really? What joy and peace can be had at a time like this, we might think? Not altogether different than what Longfellow thought. Well, last week we started a series, an Advent series, looking at Christmas perhaps from a different perspective, looking at Christmas before there was Christmas, by looking at Isaiah's Christmas. And here we see in Isaiah's prophecy the essential core truths, the true meaning and reason to celebrate. But what we saw last week and what we will see, Lord willing, again this week is that these prophecies were not given in a pristine, idyllic world. These prophecies were given in the face of fear and chaos. 
not unlike the world in which Longfellow lived, or unlike our world today. Yet it is in the midst of this, in the midst of chaos, and yes, perhaps seemingly darkness, that we do have this promise, that this promise shines through. And the promise that we see today is the promise of a child born. A child given unto us. And so we'll see that in two points this morning. Light amidst darkness, peace amidst oppression. First, a light amidst darkness. Last week we saw from Isaiah 7 that the Assyrians were coming. In a short time, the Assyrians would annihilate Israel, those ten tribes to the north, and they would begin their march upon Jerusalem and Judah. And that is seemingly exactly what happens. You can read of some of that in Isaiah chapter 8. And as we come to chapter 9, that invasion has taken place or is so certain that it is a foregone conclusion. As a result, Israel or Ephraim, those ten tribes to the north, are no more. And the Syrians, this ruthless nation, begins their aggression and their destruction upon Judah and Jerusalem. And as I said, this was a ruthless nation. In the book of Nahum, might not know there is a book called Nahum, but there is. We read of this, Nahum prophesying against Nineveh, which would have been the capital of Assyria, says this, Woe to that bloody city, full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spears, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, Nahum says. And even Isaiah here in chapter 9, a little further along, says in verse 14 that Israel would be cut off. In one day, so quick was their destruction and so brutal. And what happened to Israel was seemingly about to happen to Judah. That same brutal, prideful, arrogant, dominant nation was marching towards Jerusalem. That is the context of Isaiah chapter 9. In other words, it is not bright, it is not rosy, rather it is a day of darkness, it is a day of gloom. The shadow of the Assyrians looms large across Isaiah chapter 9. Yet in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that despair, we hear these words in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. For he's brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter times he has made glorious the way of sea, that land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of nations. For from there the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Where or what are these two places called Zebulun 
and Naphtali talked about here in verse 1. Well, if you have your map in the back, don't turn there now, but later this afternoon you might want to look this up. You'll see that those were two tribes of Israel, and they were on the very north of Israel. And it was there, no doubt, that Assyria attacked and brought their destruction. And they were probably the first tribes to experience the brutality. And as it says here in Isaiah chapter 9, that these lands, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, were brought into contempt. They were brought into judgment. But Isaiah goes on to say, in latter times, they will be made glorious. This land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations, as Isaiah says. Because even though these tribes are no more, they have not been forgotten. And in fact, a glory will shine forth from these two tribes. What glory is that? Well, it's the glory of Christ. For as we see in Matthew chapter 4, we read of this. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and then Matthew quotes these two verses. In other words, what Matthew is saying is that these verses prophesied in Isaiah were fulfilled in the life of Christ. Because Jesus lived in the city of Nazareth. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. And if you would look this on the map, you would see that Nazareth was in what is known as the tribe of Zebulun. And he lived and ministered in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee, and he was called a Galilean. And that was the area of Naphtali. In other words, Jesus was known by this region and from this area, so much so that he was called an Nazarene or a Galilean, but those, as you might know, were not compliments. In fact, those in Jerusalem and Judea would, would, would use those terms to kind of dismiss someone from that area. Think of them as, in a sense, a, a, a nobody, an, an outsider. Remember what Nathaniel said of Jesus, can anything truly good come out of Nazareth? And so, during Isaiah's day, they would be saying Zebulun, Naphtali. During Jesus' day, they were saying Galilee, Nazareth. We understand Jerusalem, we understand Judah, but these places, where are those? Those are out there in no man's land. I understand this. I sense this a little bit. I've told people before that I was born in Iowa, and oftentimes they mistake it with Idaho. And they go, oh, that's right, you're from Idaho, right? No, I'm, I'm from, from Iowa. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right, Iowa. But the sentiment is the same, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's somewhere over there. It's kind of in that place that's... In the middle of the country, nobody really knows about. Not quite sure why you would go there or 
perhaps even live there, but uh, we know it's there. The idea is that it's not really that important, right? Well, that's kind of what is being said here. Zebulun, Naphtali, Nazareth, Galilee, why, why there? Why out in the sticks, or as they say here in the south, why out in the podunk town like Nazareth would the light shine? The Sea of Galilee, the Galilee of the nations. But Isaiah says that's exactly where the light will dawn. That is where the glory will shine. In a sense, the least expected place, from a place of destruction, a place of despair. That's where the light will shine forth. And so we see this irony. It's the, the first irony in this passage, the place where you kind of pull up one eye, pull up one lip, and you go, huh? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem to compute. Well, let me show you the second place where you see this as well. As we go on, we read of this light shining and this king coming, and we see all this kingly language. As it says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy, that the staff and yoke and rod of oppressor will be broken And not just broken in a small way, but in a major way, as in the days of Midian, it says in verse 4. That's in the days of Gideon in Judges 7. You remember how the Midianites were defeated with just only 300 Israelites by the hand of God. And so it says that this king will defeat his enemies in that same way. And that sounds really good, especially as the Assyrians are coming in and bearing down upon them. And it goes on to say in verse 7, even greater and more grand language, that the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, that he will take the throne of David his father and establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. That his reign will never end. That his reign is going to be Great, he's going to establish his government, he's going to increase his government, and it's going to be with righteousness and justice and peace forevermore. And you should read that, and no doubt when this was given, those that heard it must have thought, this is wonderful, who is this mighty warrior? This one that's going to be stronger than Samson, more courageous than David, more powerful than Solomon. Tell me, who is this almighty king? Well, we're told in verse 6 who it is. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. I know we've heard those words so often that I think they've lost their impact. You should read that and go, wait, hold on. Excuse me, what was that that you said? Come again? A a, a child? A child. We have the Assyrians coming upon us. The most ruthless and fierce nation known to mankind, and your answer is a child. No, we're going to have to do a little better than that. But Isaiah doubles down and says, No, it's upon this child that a government shall be upon his shoulders. 
the shoulders of a small child bears these weighty words. One of my favorite parts of pastoral ministry is going to the hospital to visit with families that have had newborn children. And I've done this several times. Obviously, we have four children of our own. I've held many babies in my day. And yet, every time, every time I go, I'm always amazed at how small these little children are. I have a picture with each one of our children where I'm holding them with one hand, kind of as you would a, a football because that's all that's needed is essentially just one hand. They, they fit in the palm of your hand. I know what every mother is saying. No, no, they don't. They, you need two hands. <laughs> Always two. But the point is this, that they're, 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 their whole body is, is, is tiny. It's small. In other words, these are, these are small shoulders. It's going to bear a mighty load. Again, we see the the irony of this passage, and we need to ask why. I think it demonstrates to us that that God's work is never conventional. It's never predictable. It's never, if, if I could put it this way, I need to be careful, it's never logical or rational in our minds. Never do we think, this is how I think it's going to go, and yep, look, that's how it went. Never do we say that as we read through the scriptures. We're always amazed. Or perhaps even in your own life, you, you never go, that's how I thought the Lord was going to do and that's what he did. No, he's, he's always changing the plot, isn't he? In each and every one of our lives. It's not to say that God's work is illogical or irrational, but it's beyond human comprehending. And we're told why in Isaiah again, Chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. And that is exactly what God is saying through Isaiah. He's saying, you know that land way up north? That land that is no more, that is in ruin and desolation and destruction? Yeah, that place. That is where my glory is going to be revealed. And that is the place where my revelation is going to be shown forth in the greatest way. And you know that promise that I gave to your father David that his throne would be established forever, would be established eternally? Yeah, well, I'm going to destroy that throne for a while. And then when I bring it back, I won't bring it back through power and through might. No, I'm going to bring it back through a little child. Through a baby. That yes, a king will come, but his kingdom and government will not be of this earth. And the peace and light and joy that he gives will be from above. In other words, he'll be unlike any other king. He'll establish a government that you have never seen before. And this is exactly what we read in the New Testament, is it not? We read it in John chapter 1 that this light came into the world. But what does the rest of that passage say? That he came into the world, but no one recognized him. No one knew him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That the birth of Jesus Christ, in a sense, came without any fanfare. Nobody knew about it except for those that God divinely revealed it 
to them. And so that brings us to this Christmas this year. What has changed from Isaiah's day? We could all say that there is still much gloom. There's still much darkness that persists. Perhaps not of Assyria, but other nations, new problems, both individually and nationally. And yet that question still remains, what, what is the light? What is the light that's going to shine into the dark? What is the hope that we can have? What is the place that we can go to to have peace and joy? And there are the seemingly obvious answers that the world would give to you. Well, there's science. Science will make a, a breakthrough to save humanity. There's technology that will give us a, a new meaning, a new purpose to life. There's government that will save us from our social ills to give peace. There's prosperity. Perhaps we can just let everybody have just enough to, to share the wealth. There's health care. There's a thousand other things that the world would say, here's the answer to your problems, and yet all of them ring false. All of them, as grand and grandiose as they might be, still fall utterly short. And we could be thankful for all of them, but they do not solve our deepest need. In a sense, all of them are fake light. But the light comes in a much more unexpected way. The true light of Christmas shines upon a manger scene. And it's there that we see the light. Not a fake light, not a manufactured light, but a true light. We see a true king, but he's in the form of a little child. We see true joy and true peace. And we are told this is where it's at. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. It all starts with a child in a far off place in obscurity who is known to only a few who died forsaken upon a cross for you and for me. And yet, we shouldn't be, we are surprised, but we shouldn't be surprised because this is the way of God always. God always works in a mysterious way. Back in Isaiah's day, back in Jesus' day, as well as in our day, life is still crazy, it's chaotic, it's full of evil and sin, and the Assyrians still loom large. Whatever that Assyrian might be, nationally or individually, we always have those ever-present threats in our lives. And this Christmas, we are brought once again to the simplicity, in a sense, the unexpectedness of a little child in a manger. So simple, in fact, that we, we, we wonder, could this really be the right answer? Can this really be the, the true answer? But once again, as we look into the scriptures, we say, yes. I quickly have forgotten that here is the answer, here is the true solution, that this is the Savior, the true Savior of the world, 
born to set his people free, born to set me free from my sin and from my misery. And so we must not live in the darkness. We have spent too much time in the darkness because the light has come. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah says. John says the true light which gives light to everyone has come into the world. Upon us the light has dawned. The psalmist says, Psalm 36 verse 9, in your light we see lights. And so the question is, do we know this light? Have we seen this light? Do we see all of light, all of life in the the midst of this light? Christ has come. And Christ has come into our dark world to save and to redeem, to set us free. He saves us from our sins, saves us from our misery, gives hope and meaning and purpose through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and his life in heaven even now as even he dwells with us here on earth through his spirit. He has redeemed us. He has set us free. And he will never forsake us. What a glorious time to be reminded of the light and hope that is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. One of my favorite things to do at Christmas time, perhaps you do this as well, is that I like to get up in the morning when everyone else is sleeping and the house is dark. And the first thing I do is come downstairs and I plug in the Christmas tree. And that's the only light that I turn on. And that light lights up the room. Not completely, but it lights it up enough to dispel the darkness. And I love the beauty and the simplicity and the serenity of that scene. And so I hope this morning and this Christmas that in a sense you plug in the lights to your own heart and to your own mind. And the plug in is the Lord Jesus Christ. That you might want to take a time out on this Christmas season. You might want to say that, you know what, this Christmas, uh, I'm just, I'm really not being able to celebrate much. There's just not much that I can sing about, that there's not much that I can rejoice in. Life has given me more that I can handle, and I would rather just kind of, this season, sit in the dark. This verse would say to us, with all that was taking place then and all that is taking place now, that this is exactly when you must, in a sense, plug in the lights. This is exactly when the true light, the light of the gospel, shines the most bright. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of fear. It's there that you find Christ to be the greatest and the most meaningful And so do not let the cares and concerns, the sin and misery block the true light of Christmas. As I mentioned at the beginning, that's what almost happened to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Hearing the bells on Christmas morn almost led him to hopelessness. In fact, the second to last verse goes like this. In despair, I bowed my head. 
There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And yet, the song doesn't end that way, as you might well know. For the last stanza reads like this, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the rights prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. What made the change, what changed his perspective, we're not sure. But the better question is, in the light of Christ being born, is coming into the world, do we have this perspective? Do we have this light? Can we see beyond our circumstances and the darkness of this world to see the light of Christmas morn, the light of this Christmas child, and have the joy and peace that only he can bring? Because indeed, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. For in Christ, the wrong has failed, and the right has and will prevail. For to us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for those words They are words that are familiar, but they are words that bring much comfort, much joy, much peace. And Lord, we need that peace. First and foremost, we need that peace in the midst of our own sin and misery. Lord, that we would have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be in relationship with him. And Lord, that's where that peace must begin. And so I pray for everyone that hears my voice this morning, that they would know that peace of Christ this Christmas. And it's in that peace, O Lord, that we would have peace in all circumstances, in all manners. And Lord, may you once again restore that peace if it's been lost. Restore your joy to us. And may we truly celebrate and rejoice this Christmas time. We pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.